Hello and welcome to the Noise Creators Podcast. I am your host, Jesse Cannon, and today I'm excited to say I'm here with Chris Crummett. Chris is an awesome, awesome producer, engineer, mixer, and masterer. He's worked with groups like Issues, Crown the Empire, Sleeping with Sirens, Dance Gavin Dance, Amorosa, and a ton more. We get into all sorts of cool stuff about his techniques and what he does for production, and I think it's a pretty rad talk, so check it out. One second before we get started with this interview. Noise Creators is able to do these cool podcasts because we're a service, and we're trying to get the word out about our service to people. So if you enjoy this podcast, it's really, really important that you share it to people so more people can get to know what we're doing trying to connect musicians with producers to make better music and make better records for you all to listen to. So please, please, please help us out. If you like this and like what we're doing, Share it, tweet it, Facebook it, Instagram it, Tumble it, whatever you like to do, do that. As well, we're going to start doing a really cool thing. If there's a great quote from these podcasts that you really enjoy, put it on a graphic, tweet it, Facebook it, take a picture of it, and send it to us at Noise Creators on every single one of the social networks. And what we're going to do is we're going to share the best ones, and if you're one of the best ones... We're going to send you a list of prizes we have. We have a bunch of cool, rare things from bands that aren't as much of a use to us. We have a couple of extras of rare pressings of vinyl, all sorts of cool stuff. You can choose from a list, and we'll send that out to you for free if you share a really cool quote that we like and we use. Thanks so much for helping out, and please, please, please help us spread the word on our service. Thanks. So what's your chain for recording your voice today? Uh, my voice is going through a Telefunken Elam 251 into a... Undertone Audio MPEQ1, I think is mm-hmm. what it's called, um, into a Prism ADA-XR and to Pro Tools. That's definitely one of the uh, finer chains we've had on on this podcast. <laughs> well, it's honestly all I have, so no. keep it simple. Nice. So tell me about your background in music. As far as a m- music lover goes, I was raised on 80s MTV, you know, so I, I can't even remember when that started. Um, my dad was always playing records and stuff, and uh, I've been, you know, he let me use the record player as soon as I was tall enough to put records on the, on the table, and uh, that's, that's, that's where my love of music started, you know, I, along the way I uh, started playing instruments randomly. I, I know my parents put me in piano lessons in like second grade. That probably shaped a lot of what I know about music. And then by the time I was in like fifth or sixth grade, I was kind of bailing on sports and getting more into uh, playing drums, playing guitars and that stuff. And my parents noticed and put me in lessons for drums as well. And, you know, I was in band in high school. Um, so it's it's always just kind of been in my blood and it's been a big part of my life ongoing for as long as I can remember. So does that, how does playing that stuff get you into eventually being a record producer? Well, like a lot of people had a few mics laying around, you know, my dad was a musician, Uh, he was a drummer, so he had had like a little, uh, you know, a couple SM57s, or they were like Unidyne 545s or something, but you know, a few mics laying around and a recorder that could record like uh, the left side of the tape and then the right side of the tape. Mm -hmm. 
And uh, being a multi-instrumentalist, um, a little younger than a lot of people, I just started recording myself. And when I figured out that I could like play drums and then record myself singing and playing guitar over it, uh, I thought that was super cool. And then that kind of turned into being in junior high and high school and being in bands that couldn't really afford to record. And then by the time we could, I was already doing stuff that people liked better than a lot of the affordable studios in town. So... Um, again, it was just kind of like a product of getting in early and, uh, and doing it out of necessity. I wanted to be a rock star. I mean, I didn't want to produce records when I was a kid, of course, you know, I wanted to, I wanted to be the front man. I wanted to be, you know, super cool, but eventually I realized that, that, that that's not who I was. And, um, making records was something that came pretty naturally. So as you uh, realize this, at what point does it get to be that you have your own studio and all that fun stuff? So my own studio was like a room that my dad and I built in my parents' garage, which was like an outbuilding from their house. Uh, when I was like a junior in high school, uh, we built this room and that just kind of turned into my studio for uh, like way too long, actually, until mm. 2009. Uh, so it it was kind of like a practice space turned into studio. But if you mean as far as it being a real business, um, I mean, I just got tired of working regular jobs. I, you know, I worked at Winco, you know, I was a courtesy clerk working in the bottle room. I sold women's shoes for a while. <laughs> uh, I was just, I was just doing stuff that I, I didn't really enjoy. And I was always recording at night. And I realized that, you know, maybe if I put some ads in the paper, and tell people I have a studio, they'll believe me and they'll come and record with me. <laughs> and um, it worked out. And I quit my real job. I think I was 20. And I've been making making records for a living ever since. Very cool. So today, you have a much different studio than just being in your parents' backyard. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> it wasn't the backyard, by the way. Oh, okay. But... but uh, but close enough. Yeah, I'm, I've been in a few spaces since then, and I'm currently in a spot that I built from the ground up on my own property um, here in Portland, Oregon. And mm. it's, um, it's a pretty cool spot because it's the first time I've actually been able to, to design something exactly how I want it. And I own it, which is cool from a business standpoint because, you know, I watched, I watched the money go out the window paying rent for a long, long time. And realized that I just wanted to, I realized I was going to be doing this for as long as I, my ears worked. So I just had to, had to do, do it and do it right. And hopefully do it for the last time. So when you say, uh, you got to design it to the way you wanted it, what were some of the things that were lacking in the past about, uh, other spaces that you wanted to get different? You know, the, the biggest thing is, is the, uh, the control room and having a room that's really neutral and really comfortable to mix in, but also comfortable to have people in and not feel too cramped. So I put a lot of, like, when I built this place, my it was built around the control room and everything else was secondary, though I don't feel like I skimped. It was really important for me to have a comfortable, vibey space because I'm always in the control room mm -hmm. and the majority of the band is actually always in the control room. So I wanted to be comfortable. I wanted to lay out to where I could get to all my gear. 
Uh, I wanted it to obviously sound really nice, which is what I, I never had in the past. Every control room I'd ever been in sounded pretty bad. Um, so this place is a dream for me. And then on, on top of that, it's comfortable for bands and it's just a, a really nice environment. Very cool. Tell me about one of the coolest pieces of gear your studio has. Well, I would say that my my mastering gear is actually probably the coolest thing because mm. um, I feel like that's where a lot of people skimp or go to plugins and stuff. And for me, it's actually like sort of the pinnacle of what my studio is built around. I have a NIF Soma EQ that's super cool and a NIF Verimu 2 compressor. And those are like my, um, those are my go-tos. And that's if, if things don't sound good through that, then I need to look a little further into my, into what I'm doing and in the mix and stuff. Nice. So we talked about that you're multi-instruments. What are all the instruments that you play? First and foremost, I'm a drummer. Mm -hmm. Uh, that's, that's what I, trained to do the longest and that's what I've done for fun the longest but I I can also play guitar decently um I can play piano decently bass I played I played um double bass upright bass in jazz band in high school so mm. I'm all right with a bow all right on that uh I guess really anything stringed um I just recently worked on my mandolin chops I played hmm. mandolin on the right on the latest issues record and um that, that was super, super fun. Kind of weird because my hand is just about as big as a mandolin. I'm a big guy, so <laughs> that was a, that, that was interesting. I got pointy little piano fingers, though, so it worked out. But it was fun. It was super cool. Very cool. So on this podcast, we have this saying that there's like uh, on a, a scale, there's like a Steve Albini who only, you know, made comment that you could do a better take. And then you have a John Feldman who like fully rewrites the bad songs most of the time. Where do you see yourself on that scale most of the time? I'd say I'm I'm right in the middle. Um I'm definitely not a Steve Albini, but I'm I'm also definitely not a Feldman. You know, I I work with bands that uh I, I try to make sure that I work with bands that have 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 good songs or good parts of songs to begin with. Um and I feel that my role as a producer is not so much cuz I mean you talk about Feldman, but Feldman's a songwriter mm -hmm. and a producer. Of course, he's yes. an excellent producer, but he's also a songwriter. I'm more of a producer than a songwriter. Uh, so guys come in with songs that might not be done. I'll sit down and help them through the process of finishing them or the process of writing a song from scratch. But I'm not sitting here with a guitar singing songs to bands, telling them this is what they have to do. I'm always giving input on melodies. Um, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm more of a finisher than, mm -hmm. a, than, a, than a writer. Very cool. What do you think you bring to records most often? I think I bring a lot of stuff, but I think that my mindset going into records is, is making sure that bands sound, that the record ends up with the band sounding that the way it does, or maybe just a super, super awesome version of what that band sounds like. Um, I, I'm never trying to change a band or, or you know make them fit into the way that I want things to sound. Um, so I, I'm always tr I'm always trying to get input from the band and, and figure out what they want and implement my skills in a way that helps them the best because I think that creativity is really what sells records. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, crea creativity and, and, of course, like catchiness, melodies. Well, I firmly believe that it's my job to make sure that their creativity comes across because their creativity is what got them signed. Their creativity is... What has the band, what has people interested in the band and what keeps the band together themselves? You know, if, if it's a band, it's a group of guys who are together for a reason and that's their creativity and their inspiration. So I feel that it's my job 
to elevate that and to put it on a beautiful painting, you know, mm. um, and make sure everyone's doing their job as well to, to ensure that that happens. I like that. What's a common mistake you see bands do before getting to the studio? Bands as a whole, uh, maybe not saving money. Mm. Um, some guys forget that not working or doing anything for the month that they're here means that, uh, you know, they're sitting around doing nothing when they're not performing. And uh, a lot of guys get super bummed and super antsy because they don't have money. But that's not really, I would say the number one thing is mostly singers, and this goes for every musician, but guys who change their routine. I, I couldn't, and this happens, okay, what I'm about to say I feel like happens less now because I, I get less and less people that smoke. But mm. like through the, through the 2000s and stuff, I would always get singers that were like, yeah, man, I quit smoking last week because I knew yeah. we were coming to the studio. And it's like, what are you doing? Don't do that. That's yeah. like trauma on your vocals. And then now yeah. I'm going to have you smoke again, which is terrible of me to do. But, you know, it's and, and then it's still going to be weird because your, your vocals have gone through all this trauma uh, of breaking your routine. It's the same thing with drinking things that you would normally think are bad. And they are in the long run, in my opinion. But it doesn't mean that it's better in the short term to just stop those things cold turkey because it is hard on your voice. Um, yeah. So I tell guys, I always try to tell guys when I first, when we first start talking about the record is if you really want to change something, change it now. And if you're mm. not going to be serious about it, change, change it after the record because your focus right now is to be inspired to make sure you sound the best and perform the best. And, it, and it's not it's your job to make sure that you're not shooting yourself in the foot by changing your lifestyle so much that you spend all your time, you know, hankering for something or itching for something or, you know, just feeling uncomfortable or, or just ch even if you feel better, you're, you're changing your body and, and it's going into the studio is not the time. Eating habits, too. It's not just I'm not talking about just like drugs and alcohol and stuff. Uh, it's just really anything. I, I think the one the one exception is is getting more sleep while you're recording than you usually do. That's the one thing that could actually be helpful. That that I absolutely agree with. And that's and actually we have a we have like an apartment here at the studio and the, all the mattresses have like memory foam and stuff. I try to mm. make sure dudes are comfortable and they can sleep. And that's that's something I always ask people. I don't think they realize why I'm asking, but. Mm. Uh, sleep, sleep is huge, you know, and if, if you're not sleeping, there's a chance that your voice is going to sound like shit. Kind of like mine does right now. Actually. <laughs> I didn't sleep very well last night. I, I say same and I, I'm experiencing the same exact thing. It, it, but it is that thing too of it is like, you know, getting in good habits before, for these things. But like, I, I try to tell everybody, it's like that thing of like, when I leave the studio at night, I'm like, I want you asleep by this time. Cause the other thing is, is less sleep, more crankiness and more prone people are to lashing out and do, doing stupid things. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Poor sleep, poor decisions. Like that. What's a smart thing you see bands do during the recording process? I think um, the, the smartest thing is when bands take it upon themselves to keep working even before or after their parts are done or after we're done for the day in the studio. Um, I think it's excellent when bands go back and instead of just leaving everything up to me, they're like, okay, this is, these were the concerns today. This is what we went through. You know, I maybe I'm a little sloppy on my rhythm parts, so I'm going to practice for the next hour. Or, um, you know, we realize this song, the bridge is just, 
kind of weird. Second verse doesn't have very good lyrics, so I'm going to go back and try to figure that out. A band's working on their own and mm-hmm. uh, coming back to me prepared based on the prior days is, is always super awesome. Um, and I think that's really smart. And the other smart thing that bands are doing is, uh, you know, there, there's always at least one guy these days that has a computer that can run some kind of DAW so they can be demoing. Mm-hmm. Because a, a big thing to make yourself prepared is to have heard what your stuff sounds like. It's one thing to play and to listen to yourself while you're playing or singing. And it's such a different thing to hear yourself back. A lot of smaller bands used to just, you know, you'd go into the studio and it you'd spend a lot of money and a lot of time realizing that maybe things aren't the way you want internally with the band or as you, or yourself as a musician. Um, and those are hard lessons to learn. And now mm-hmm. guys can learn a lot of those lessons on their own. And, and even to smaller things of just like, oh, why didn't you like this melody I've been singing in my head? And then they hear it back on their demo and they're like, oh yeah, it's, it's actually not that cool. It clashes with the lead or vice versa. The lead mm-hmm. clashes with the vocal. Um, and bands can figure this stuff out. So we're being super productive in the studio and I'm not the only one who has to make sure everything works together. I like that. So what happens when you and a band disagree about something? Fist fight. <laughs> the boxing. That's why, that's why I have a boxing ring. <laughs> You know, I'm a pretty big guy too, so I usually get my way. <laughs> nice. uh, no, 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 no. We we talk it out, but I, I'm pretty vocal about how I feel about things, and I'm I'm pretty. I mean, I'm hard headed, but I also am willing to listen. And if things, if if we can't come to an agreement, a lot of times I will skip things because I'm really not one for. Obviously, compromises are important, but if I feel like something is being compromised then I'm prone to say, let's stop, let's work on something else. It's either too heated or there's just, you know, none of us have the right idea. Let's move on and come back to this when it's fresh and look at it with um, fresh eyes, fresh ears. Very cool. So let's talk about how you feel about some of the modern production tools these days. Does amp simulation and reamping have roles in your production? Amp simulation doesn't really, aside from demoing. I mean, amp simulation is, is great for certain things. When we're just sitting in the control room, messing around with writing and changing parts, I mean, it's awesome to just like, oh, this would be cool with high gain. This would be cool clean. Let's hear the same part with high gain. And I'm not burning tubes in my amps or, you know, trying to move mics or mess with that. that that's a great place for amp sims with, with the real production. I generally don't use them. I mean, they're cool for vocal effects and stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I have a few, but but not for guitars. Not not for me personally. I really prefer real amps. And reamping? Reamping is uh, it's a very useful tool. I don't like relying on it. I would prefer the guitar player play play the amp, you know, like and not just play through the amp, but feel the amp and feel the part through the amp and commit to tones i feel like trying to go back and find tones based on someone playing through a different sound and a different style is such a weird and bizarre way to work for me personally but at the same time there have been some records where i'm like thank god i printed a di because i'm sitting here and i'm realizing that you know this part could be so much cooler you know or just other, or you know, this this guy did something on the demo where they did a DI that was so freaking cool, and we just it just isn't as cool anymore. So let's reamp it through my stuff and make it cool. They're, reamping has its place, and it's an it's an excellent excellent tool. Cool. How about samples dash MIDI programmed drums? I don't. I think I've ever uh, in my whole career I've done two records that had MIDI 
drums uh, that weren't EDM, you know, yeah, that yeah. were meant to sound like real drums. MIDI's awesome. MIDI's incredible. Mm-hmm. But as far as uh, replacing the actual drummer, um, the only time I've done that is out of pure necessity, um, just really strict timelines and either no drummer or a very, very insufficient drummer. Most of the time, uh, I mean, me being a drummer, I kind of find it hard to find any excuse to not have a real drummer on a record because, mm. uh, you know, if, if it really comes down to it, I'll just play it. So so I, I don't really ever have an excuse, and I feel like real drums always sound better. As far as samples go, you know, I, I take every time I track drums, I take samples of each drum, and there are situations, uh, especially with a lot of, like when I work with more modern heavy music or rock music, I'll, I'll blend those, blend the samples of the drums back in with the real drums because it's really the only way to have the type of production that some people want. But mm-hmm. I try to make sure that I'm using my own stuff and using stuff I've tailored to, to what sounds cool to me instead of trying to use other people's samples and trying to... I, another thing I find super weird to me is trying to implement what someone else thought was a cool drum sound, made a sample, and then I'm trying to make it my own. That That's always like really strange because I don't think about kick drums. I don't think about snare drums i'm thinking about like the drum kit and how it works so Mm. it's just kind of backwards to me to try to work from samples but i understand why people do it it's just not for me understood how about some favorite soft sense i like omnisphere a lot Mm -hmm. i use i actually use virus control because i Mm -hmm. have and this is not a soft sense so it's not really an answer to your question (laughs) but i i have a virus an access virus ti that i use Mm -hmm. for a lot of my synth stuff and it has like a software controller called uh, Virus Control that I use a mm. lot. But other than that, I don't use a lot of SoftSense. I mainly use that and um, a couple other things. Very cool. Do you master your own records? Yes. And what's the philosophy behind that? Um, that kind of is in line with the philosophy of when I was younger, just not having the budget to record other places and doing things myself. I, the DIY mentality, I guess. And um, I've, you know, what, earlier records... The, any mastering engineer I could afford just wasn't really doing what I wanted. And I realized that I could just develop that craft like I did recording or anything else in my life and, and figure it out. And I've been developing that for about 10 years. Mastering other people's records along the way too really helps me get an understanding for how to treat my own records. But but that's that's my mentality behind it. I think start to finish, I know exactly what I want a record to sound like and I know what I want it to sound like when it's done. And I'm really the only one that can make that sound because, you know, I can't explain, you know, mm. explaining the way something sounds is, is nuts to me. It's impossible. Yeah. So for me, it's just... Uh, getting the sound that's in my head and and getting it onto the disc or the mp3 or the phone whatever you're listening on very cool so how long does it do you usually like to take to record a song and then how long does do you usually like to take to mix a song well i would say i for for recording i like to allocate about two and a half days to to each song and uh mixing is between a half a day and a day depending on how many songs i've mixed that are similar Very cool. What's a good lesson you've learned from another producer? A really good lesson that I learned. So I learned a lot of stuff from other producers when I was younger. But I think one of the most important things that I learned when I was younger, um, actually like interning on a record or an EP was kind of kind of how not to be Um, there. This 
it, it was in the early 2000s. Uh, things were definitely changing with the music industry. Budgets were getting smaller. And it was kind of the start of that like new world DIY. You know, you can actually like record and make a whole record on your computer now versus the super spending big studio. You know, we'll take a year and a million dollars to make a record, which which is super cool. But you know, I was I was interning and I was watching those two worlds kind of collide with a band that was self-funding, didn't have a ton of money, and a guy who was used to making records with with very little time limits and um, you know just just kind of the mentality that he could do whatever he wanted at any mm. time. And there's something kind of cool to that and and free, but at the same and and you know, a guy's got to get his inspiration, I guess, but. I was also, I just remember sitting there and being like, you know, it's it's 11 in the morning. I just watched this guy drink an entire mug of whiskey. Ooh. And then he went in and played drums really badly for like four hours straight while the band sat around, you know, didn't wasn't playing to their songs, wasn't doing anything. You know, he was just kind of doing his own thing on their studio time. And it was all in the name of getting inspiration and feeling it and... I understand that, but I mm -hmm. just remember sitting there and being like, you know, this is still a job. No matter what, this is a job, it's a business, um, and you have to treat your clients right. And uh, there's other ways to get inspiration and feel the music and, and include people a a instead of just getting drunk and, and being a weirdo, which is what <laughs> I felt. And that might sound harsh, but 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 it was odd to me that, that someone would even do that or think that was okay. And, and ever since then, I've been been pretty clear about making sure that I'm always sober in the studio. Mm -hmm. You know, and everybody's different. Again, this is just for me, but I'm always sober. I, I'm always attentive to my clients, um, whether it's me working with them or my engineer. You know, we're it's always clients first. Mm -hmm. um, but, but, you know, also making sure that I give my opinion on things. But, uh, uh, you know, you're not going to find me drinking whiskey first thing in the morning and, <laughs> and fucking around with, with your budget and your studio time, because to me, that's just crazy. It, it, it really, it, even as I always say it as somebody, who uh, does a lot of drinking in my life? I think I've drank in the studio twice in my life ever. And uh, yeah, yeah, totally. I, I'm the same. I've I have partied plenty, man. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I've I've drank yeah more than I could even possibly imagine or even want to. But but it's not when I'm working. Yeah. Um, no, I think that th th think that, that there's a, a very good reason for that church and state separation. Yeah, <laughs> that's a good one. Tell me about one of the best moments you've had in the studio. Man, I've had a lot of a lot of great moments. I mean, one of the best moments for me mm -hmm. was when I got to work with Chino Moreno of the Deftones. Oh man, that's awesome. That that I mean that I've always loved that band. They're still one of my mm -hmm. favorite bands of all time. Same. I think they're one of the most consistently awesome bands of all time at this point, especially for how long they've been putting out music. But uh but yeah, that day was just incredible you know never have i i mean we want to talk about studio moments and working mm -hmm. in the studio with him was killer he's a great singer it was so cool and just getting to know the guy as a musician was, was mm -hmm. really neat but i will say surrounding that i've never been so happy to be stuck in traffic on the way to take someone to the airport <laughs> than i was with chino moreno that was like that was a great moment him going through my ipod and being like oh you know this band this is so cool and just like sharing musical moments with with a musical hero is is just there's no comparing to it that's fucking awesome how about one of the worst moments and what you learned from it i'm pretty proud to say that i've 
yet to have any like exceptionally bad moments. <laughs> I can't. I I can't honestly think of a worse moment. Mm. Wow. Um, yeah. That's good. I, I mean, I know I'm not perfect. I know that I'm sure there has been, but nothing really comes to mind. All good. That's very good. So, so let's get into your taste in music a little bit. Mm-hmm. What's a perfect record someone else has made, and what about it makes it perfect? There's a lot of perfect records. You know, there's like probably five perfect Tom Petty records. Mm. There is, um, I don't know if there's a perfect Deftones record, which is tough because I feel, because I feel like the, every Deftones record is like 95% perfect, mm-hmm. but maybe not. So what disturbs you about some of them? Uh, th- there's always one song that I feel like is maybe someone else in the band song or something. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. I, I could agree with that. Uh, I, feel like, I feel like there's always one song on the records, or, or two or three, but there's always like one song where I'm like, does that, you know, did you need the 11th song? Mm-hmm. I would have been much happier with 10, but... I don't care. I still listen to that song because the rest of the songs and and that's really the real problem is not that that 11th song is bad. It's the problem that the other 10 are maybe the greatest songs that came out that year. Mm-hmm. So you're just kind of like, you know, it's kind of overshadows itself. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, per, a perf, what's a what a perfect record is to me is a record that a lot of times this is how perfect records start out with my listening habits mm-hmm. is that I fall in love with like the first half mm-hmm. and I listen to it so many times that I can't even like listen to the first half anymore. And then maybe song six, I'm like, ah, oh, this is actually an awesome song. Why did I never even listen to this song? And then mm-hmm. all of a sudden I realize that the second half is so much better than the first half. And then I wear myself out on the second half and go back around and then I realize this whole record is is perfect and amazing. Because uh, ten, 10 songs is a lot, 10 songs or more, mm-hmm. is really a lot to take on at once. You know, I, I think some might argue that a perfect record is one you like all the way through the first time. Mm-hmm. But I find myself, records that I like all the way through the first time maybe don't have enough depth mm-hmm. for me to um, stand the long term. I, I think that's very well put because I I've definitely have the, a very similar experience. Yeah, it's like your brain can't handle all the goodness, so it's got to split it in half or thirds or something. I think there's also just a thing with like some of the the records that have depth compared to the records that like you just like lightly like peripherally uh, for a while. Yeah. It's it's just like there's more more to go back to, and that doesn't always strike you in the beginning. Yep. Yeah. Exactly. How about three of your favorite producers? Rich Costi, Rich Costi, and probably Rich Costi. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I know that sounds crazy, but like everything that guy does, I'll listen to and I generally end up loving it. Hmm. And it's not just his producing, his mixing. He's all, I also really look up to the guy because I feel like I'm a tiny version of what he has done mm. in the fact of really doing things start to finish. I mean, not the mastering side of things, but he's done so many records start to finish where he just like kills every aspect of it. But but aside from Rich Costi and his many, many, many amazing records that he's been involved <laughs> in, you know, of course, Rick Rubin, a lot of stuff he did in the 90s and the early 2000s is um, just so cool. I, I lump him in Rick Rubin and Brendan O'Brien are kind of together mm-hmm. because they both, I know they've been credited for different things on records they worked on together, but you know when Brendan O'Brien's an engineer, he's also doing some producing. You know, there's no way he didn't have anything to say on Red Hot Chili Peppers records or, you know, other stuff mm-hmm. that they worked on. But separately, they've also produced a ton of 
really amazing records. Um, and then Flood would be my third one. Nice. Uh, Very well going. done. Yeah. No, it's that funny thing with Bre- Brendan O'Brien. Oh, it's like Rick Rubin hires people who are producers to do that since yeah. he's not going to be there the whole time. Yep. Yep, exactly. But he know, but it's his decisions mm-hmm. that make the outcome of the record so cool. Which yeah, is so why I, you know, some people might say, "Oh, he's not a producer. He's not even there." But you know, there are some people like that that I would say are not producers. But Rick Rubin really is. His all his decisions are really well thought out, and they're all for the benefit of the album. Uh, agree. I, it's just that thing of he knows how he ha- what he has to do to keep an objective perspective, and if that's it, his track record proves that uh, it works. Exactly. How about we go through five of your favorite records that have shaped your musical growth over the years? Records that have shaped me as a producer and as a musician and as a person. That's three things. Um, My bad. Well, let's see. Early on, I would definitely say that Nirvana Nevermind was huge for me. And the, you know, Bleach and Incesticide are, are lumped in that too, because I got, uh, once I got Nevermind, I bought those, I bought Bleach immediately, and then I bought uh, Incesticide when it came out shortly after. And, and the, man, I, I listened to those re- records nonstop, and I was like, you know, I was like nine years old, but, mm. but that stuff was just incredible to me and made me want to be a musician. Uh, another album that's sort of from that era, but a little bit later, would be um, Smashing Pumpkins. Uh, melancholy and the infinite sadness Mm -hmm. because it's really that record for me covers so much ground and it's and every song i mean that that's actually a perfect record for me Mm. um even though it has some really strange songs and some other people singing on it it's just like proof that good ideas and 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 fresh ideas in the right place and time um can just be beautiful forever and that that record is a it's too you know it's like what 24 songs or more or something i think Um, i think it's even more yeah yeah and it's but it's incredible it's just it's unbelievable and it's a journey and it's raw musicianship at its best and it just i don't know there's so many things about it that have that have inspired me over the years time and time again uh more recent record not to just sound like a total old man, this is still kind of old at this point, but um, 10 years old, I think. Uh, Brand New, The Devil and God Are Raging Inside Me is a record that kind of made me realize I love music again. It was a point in my life that I was working so much that it was kind of hard to listen to stuff sometimes. And I don't know, when I got that record, it hit me. I I got Mm. it a couple years late, too. I don't think I even got it until 2008. But man, that record made me realize that there's still raw emotion in music and music can can sound huge and sound like a band Um, and the lyrics really touched me at the time another record this is kind of a weird one but another record that i feel kind of made me rethink how i feel about music oh actually wait a minute i'll i'll get to that one uh notwist shrink Mm. Notwith Shrink made me realize the band is Notwith, the album Shrink. Not many, very many people know about yes. that record. Yep, uh, German band who whose follow up release was called Neon Golden, also mm. a beautiful record. But Shrink, the ability. So I always loved like Depeche Mode and Nine Inch Nails and bands like that that had the ability to blend really hard electronics with the rock band elements, but they were more electronic based. And what Notwith did was they they took that to a more modern level in a way that really 
I don't know. It was really cool. I, I don't really feel like people were doing that with indie music at the time. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and I got that record and I was like, man, this is the future. This is so cool. And I couldn't really get people to get into it. <laughs> and then uh, Radiohead came out with Kid A, mm-hmm. which is a total, in my opinion, a total reflection of Not With Shrink. Mm. And uh, all of a sudden the world loves it. And um, And I thought that was great because I thought that was the future of music at the time. Mm. And um, that, you know, I, I Shrink will always hold that place in my heart of, of being a super futuristic record of when it came out and making me look forward instead of backwards at a time when a lot of music was changing in a way that I didn't enjoy. And then uh, so, something I've been listening to a lot lately, well, not lately, but in the last few years, um, I would say Lana Del Rey's Born to Die. Um, Man, that record is a perfect example of I really can't tell you why I love it so much. I just I just love it. It's I just always want to listen to it. I think her voice is super cool. You know, I know there was controversy about is that really her? Is she really that good? I don't even care. Like when I listen to the record, I could I could care less. It just is super, super cool start to finish. Well, so my next question was gonna be what's your favorite record of recent times and what's inspiring you about it? Is that is that the one? No, no, I would say I would go more recent than that. And I would say Fanagrams 3. The album's mm. called 3. Yep. And the the best song on it, and it's one of the best songs and best productions I've heard in years. I think when it first came out, I might have even argued that it was the best song I ever heard in my life. Mm. And <laughs> it's the song, uh, You Don't Get Me High Anymore. Yes. Man, there's some vocal stuff that just like notes she goes to that you don't expect just some stuff that's so fresh and so cool. And the way that they're blending electronics and the feel of a real band, I think is just amazing. Yeah, that's a rad song. So my last question is, uh, what have you been working on lately? Just finished, well, just finished. A few months ago, I, I finished a record with a band from Japan called Survive Said the Prophet that is mm. super, super cool. Um, and they actually released just recently released uh, the third single off that record. Um, Definitely something people should check out. I'd never worked with a band from Japan anymore, working with bands who, um, where English isn't necessarily their first language or, Mm -hmm. um, you know, they're, they're going for kind of a specific style or accent that may not be uh, their native tongue is super challenging and Mm -hmm. really, really cool. And that was a fun record to make. Um, it, it's been this, uh, you know, working with bands from other countries is always super cool because it's a really, really interesting challenge. Uh, mm. And then another thing that I worked on recently that will be coming out eventually, um, this band called One Shot Thrill produced a few songs for them that are really, really cool. It's like EDM, but kind of dark, and it's singing and rap. But uh, mm. to, like normally, if someone said that to me, I'd be like, "That sounds terrible." <laughs> but uh, f- but it's actually really awesome. Um, they're definitely the they're definitely the exception to the rule. And then I'm working with a guy right now named Don Vetta, and mm. it's just straight up rock stuff. And man, it's cool. He's mm. it's it's that classic like badass guitar player that's also the singer who's an excellent singer singer songwriter, but also like shredding solos. Kind like it's it's kind of the format of band format of like Weezer or Smashing Pumpkins where the singer also, or Coheed even, you know, where the singer was the singer first and foremost, but you get to a lead part and you're like, holy cow, that guy shreds guitar. It's so awesome, you know, backing off the mic and just ripping. Uh, And I think that's super cool. And his band doesn't sound like any of those bands at all, but it's that sort of format and I love it. 
If you enjoyed this episode, please remember the golden rule of the internet, that if you enjoy something you got for free, please tweet, Facebook, share, or tell your friends about it in whatever way you like to do that. Please check out Noise Creator's website and take a look around. We have tons of interviews, discographies, Spotify playlists from all the best producers out there on our service. If you're unsure about who your band should work with, we can help you get the best producer fit for your record. To keep up with us, follow at Noise Creators on Twitter, Instagram, SoundCloud, Tumblr, or Facebook. This podcast can also be found wherever podcasts are found, including iTunes and Stitcher. I'm your host, Jesse Cannon. I can be found on Twitter at Jesse Cannon or at jessecannon.com. Again, please help spread the word about this podcast and what Noise Creators does so we can keep this going.